You're listening to the UI podcast by the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. What is the concept of soft power? How have Japan, South Korea and China utilized it? And what is Panda diplomacy? So today I'm joined by Oscar Xiao, who is an intern with the Asia program here at the Institute. And Oscar is completing his Bachelor in Global Studies. Oscar, tell me, let's start with the, with the concepts. What is soft power? Uh, yeah, so soft power is a relatively new perspective on, on how you kind of measure different countries' uh, influence in the world. So the term soft power was coined by Joseph Nye uh, in the late 80s. And the term became very popular around 1990 when he published a book, uh, Bound to Lead which he kind of explained how the American power in the world wasn't actually dwindling after the Cold War, which some experts claim, but rather it had only shifted from the previous you know, military power into something he called soft power, which was culture and how other countries view your own country. And th this idea kind of picked up speed as more countries you know, gravitate towards the American uh, hegemon, if you would. And uh, he elaborated this concept later on uh, and kind of applied it more specifically to, to countries rather than just a general idea. And in 2004, he published a book just titled Soft Power. And what is, uh, what is hard power then? Well, hard power is stuff that is very easy to, to grasp. Uh, of course, military power is, is, is the most obvious. Uh, you know, how, many, how big is your army and can I invade your country? That's basically hard power. It's very direct. There's no compromise. It, it's basically actor A makes actor B do it because he can. There is no kind of, okay, actor B might like actor A, so that's why I'm doing it. That's more soft power. All right. So this is more, uh, as you said, culture and views of countries and yeah exactly yeah. and how what what does the term imply today so today soft power is mostly used by countries I'd say um, so d there's different measurements of soft power um, but the, but in general countries will use it and and they'll try to influence other countries through for example their own culture mm -hmm. Or if they're very uh, open society, it can also benefit a country's soft power. Um, the problem with soft power is, is it's very hard to measure. It's not very concrete. But there are different indexes in the world. So uh, some of you can think of, there's this website called Soft Power 30. Mm -hmm. And they try to measure every year the top 30 countries with the most influential or, or soft power. Uh, there's also the Anhalt Ipsos Nation Brand Index. It's maybe not complete soft power, but it kind of paints a picture in, in how other countries view your country. All right. And who are the top ones? So the top, I mean, it's, it's kind of what you would expect. You know, US is, is always up there, uh, France, Germany. Um, some Asian countries are, you know, Japan and, and Korea are, are getting up there usually. Uh, and uh, actually Sweden is, is usually top 10. All right. Yeah. And what for? Well, Sweden is it's known for being a very open society. 
So that kind of plays into the whole, you know, governance and, uh, <coughs> you know, uh, actually culture as well. You know, being this open and, and very forward uh, uh, society. Uh, and also, um, if you want something specific, uh, Greta, mm -hmm. with her uh, climate uh, movement, has actually influenced, uh, you know, other countries' perspective, perspective of Sweden. All right, all right. Yeah. And if we go to the biggest case you, you mentioned, the U.S. Yeah. Uh, what what images or what soft power this? Well, U.S. from I'd say post Cold War at least. You know, they they won the whole Cold War and and democracy became the norm. Um, and from that, other countries you know looked to the U.S. not just for their leadership, but also you know there's this whole idea of uh, you know blue jeans and then fast food became the norm and I mean that was basically a form of US soft power you could see how more movies you know with with English uh, languages was became popular in, in Europe and parts of Asia and uh, American TV series and just the, the brand uh, of people you know I know a lot of you know Swedish friends who almost idolizes the idea of moving to America. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I get the picture. But what you're talking about it's it's a cultural thing, mm -hmm. but it's also a way of power that is also used by governments. Yeah. So once you have soft power, and again, it's it's kind of hard to measure. But once you have the uh, the ability to influence others, you could do quite a lot of things. So and of course, you can lose it. I, th I think if we go back to the U.S., it's a good example. With Hollywood and the growth of American soft power, they became very influential, and, and um, <coughs> a lot of their practices became norms. But then you can kind of see when they kind of overstepped their boundaries. Uh, an example is obviously post 9/11, which is very tragic. But they kind of ignored everyone else, and that made them lose soft power in a way because. Previously, people looked up to the U.S. and you know they placed their trust in it. But after that, they lost trust, and they probably became less influential then. All right. So if we move towards East Asia, um, are there any governments or policies or countries that try to uh, exercise soft power? Uh, yeah. So there's a couple, um, and I'll try to do kind of a, a chronological order. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest. Uh, countries who who uh, has a lot of soft power is Japan. At least from my generation, I know a lot of kids. You know, they watched. I think Pokemon is uh, one of the most obvious from Japan. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, the Game Boy, Nintendo in general, uh, and the the Japanese culture, like ninjas and samurai, all that kind of ties into soft power because it paints a very positive picture of the country itself. And in fact, this idea of soft power was so popular in Japan that the government launched a whole proposal. And uh, they called it the Cool Japan Proposal, actually. Uh, and, and this was from uh, an article that was written by uh, Douglas McRae in 2002. Mm -hmm. uh, it was titled, uh, Japan's Gross, Gross National Cool, which he kind of mentions the stuff I talked about previously. Yeah. And this idea basically became 
something that the Japanese government adapted. Um, so let me just, in 2010, so the Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry, they basically established a uh, office that tried to promote any industry that could uh, push forward the Japanese culture into the rest of the world. And in the proposal, they also basically explain how increasing Japan's, well, they didn't call it soft power, they called it the, the image of, of Japan, would basically lead to other countries in the end wanting Japan to come into the country, well, not come into the country, but kind of uh, cooperate more. Yeah. Because if you have a country that has a very positive view in, in your country, like if, if your population enjoys other countries' um, culture, mm. they won't object you cooperating with the country. Yeah. So that's basically how Japan kind of pushed the, <coughs> I guess, the cool Japan idea. The agenda, yeah. Yeah, and, and sorry, they, they kind of uh, made it into a policy. Can you say that it's been successful? I mean, you, you mentioned before it's hard to measure, but... Yeah. Well, I would say it's been very successful. Mm -hmm. If you look at, I mean, it's I get, well, not controversial, but Japan and, and if you look back at its history, it's not the most positive, to put it lightly. Yeah. But I think because of how they have really, really tried to push their soft power influence to the rest of the world, a lot of people don't associate these negative things with Japan. So if, if you mention Japan to someone today, I think anyone would, okay, think first sushi, probably. <laughs> It, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a very easy association because that is what they've tried to do. Yeah. They've tried to push the idea that Japan is sushi, uh, samurai ninjas, like these cool stuff, the mangas, the, the animes that you see. And in fact, it's so popular that even some Western cartoons has, you know, copied the style of anime. Yeah. If you go on Netflix, there's, you know, American-made anime. A and I think manga anime has become like a household name, even though their Japanese words. Yeah. So I, I think that is basically showing how effective their uh, proposal has been. And uh, if we take, for example, South Korea, mm -hmm. what about that? So South Korea uh, actually, I think, is, is a uh, interesting case as well. I would say they came a bit after uh, Japan. Uh, and. Uh, uh, the South Korean soft power actually has become, I think, so popular that they've, they've named it. It's called the uh, Hanryu, which mm -hmm. basically translates to the Korean wave. Mm -hmm. And this Korean wave actually started uh, a bit earlier than, than the recent years, but it was very concentrated in, in, in Asia. Uh, I think it was around early 2000s to 2010. K-pop and K-drama became a huge hit in China and, and Japan. Uh, I don't really know the exact reason why it happened, but uh, probably because you know people looked elsewhere and it fit their taste. So that was kind of the first Korean wave. Uh, and this eventually spread to the rest of Asia. But it, it hadn't really touched the, the, the US or, or Europe yet. So some notable kind of uh, bands from that era, mm -hmm. some people might recognize them. So there's Girls' Generation, Super Junior, uh, TVXQ, just to name a few. And uh, 
there was a drama that basically pushed the Korean culture into Japan uh, called Winter Sonata. Mm -hmm. And this became uh, so popular in Japan that that uh, uh, <clears throat> that just the rest just kind of automatically followed. And then in recent years, uh, they call it the Korean Wave 2.0 or the modern Korean Wave is kind of when it became global. Mm. One of the biggest boy bands uh, today is, is uh, BTS. And I'm sure some have probably heard of them. They've topped the list in the US and, and all that. They were guests on Jimmy Fallon, I believe. So they basically made it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how does the government of South Korea uh, use or exercise this? Uh... Yeah. Um, so in a similar fashion to Japan, they didn't really have the exact same proposal, mm -hmm. but the government has also set up a uh, a platform, I would say, for for Korean industries to export their own culture. So any industry that in Korea that that has the possibility to, in a creative way, and cooperate with a foreign country, push and kind of paint Korea in a positive light, uh, there is basically support from the government. Uh, in 1999, the, the Korean government actually passed something called the Basic Law for Promoting Cultural Industries, which is exactly what I described. And uh, this kind of led to not just what I mentioned, K-pop and, and drama, but also, for example, I'd say Korean cuisine has become a hit, uh, you know, Korean barbecue. And then there's also kimchi, of course. Uh, kimchi, I love kimchi. <laughs> uh, but then there's also Korean beauty products. Uh, I'm not really familiar with that since I don't use it, but I've heard Korean makeup and, and beauty products is very popular. So that's just basically also again showing that it is a, an effective way if the government kind of supports uh, its own export of its soft power and culture. Yeah. And so then, uh, what about China, for example? Yeah, I think it's very hard to uh, not discuss China when you discuss soft power. Mm. Especially today, it's, it's become very relevant. Uh, China is kind of known for being very clear that they want to increase their soft power. Mm -hmm. uh, if I remember correctly, in 2014, in one of Xi Jinping's kind of, one of his many national assembly speeches, uh, I have exact here. So the exact quote he actually used was translated, of course. Mm -hmm. We should increase China's soft power, give a good Chinese narrative, and better communicate China's message to the world. And I'm not sure if any other countries has specifically, like a leader has specifically said, we need to increase our soft power like, like she did. And, and you can kind of see how, well, it's up for debate, I guess, but there are people who claim that China has become more active after Xi Jinping became uh, president of China. Mm. But before before that, China has already kind of uh, had some form of soft power. An example would be, well, I guess the Mao era, they had soft power basically because uh, of the Cold War. Mm. So the communist countries turned to China. And that's kind of soft power because they look at China's governance. So they don't really care about the other stuff, but they wanted the Maoist governance as well. So that's a form of soft power. Mm. And in more recent years, China has kind of called, uh, exercised this thing 
that everyone calls Panda diplomacy. So if you didn't know, all pandas in the world are actually owned by China, and they're only they're leased by by other countries. So unless China approves, your country's not getting a panda. Yeah. So I don't think Sweden has a panda. Uh, I think well, I know the first panda was basically sent to the UK, uh, and that panda I think is the. I think it was the first one. And then I think Russia got one as well. Um, and you can kind of see like where China is trying to gain favors, I guess, in yeah. a way. And then you can kind of track where the pandas are. And it's pretty interesting. So it's actually panda <laughs> diplomacy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, panda diplomacy, exactly. It's quite literally. And I, I, th I think they even took back a panda. Uh, I forgot which year it was. But they basically recalled one of the pandas because they were unhappy. Yeah. So it has happened. So this is also hard. <laughs> well, it, it depends. I, I mean, uh, they're, they're not saying, uh, yeah, exactly. So it's kind of hard to distinguish exactly where you draw the line between yeah. hard and soft power. No, this but, is obviously soft. But, but I feel like pandas. pandas is kind of hard to define a hard power. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Are there any other examples of uh, how, how this um, strategy is manifested? Or For China, China specifically, yeah. well, actually, very, very recent. Uh, during the pandemic, uh -huh. uh, they have done something that people call the mask diplomacy. Yes. And if you're on Twitter and if you follow China, any Chinese leadership account, it's very clear that there is this agenda, I guess, that they're trying to push. That China is the, the hero that comes and saves countries in need. Mm -hmm. And you can discuss how ethical or, or if you want to be skeptical what the real motive is. But this is basically a form of soft power. You, uh, you try to influence other countries, you try to paint your own country in a positive light by trying to show how much you care about other countries. Uh, the, re the, re the reception of this is, is quite mixed, I think, depending on which country you're in. Of course, the country who, who gets the aid, like Italy, will most likely respond in a very positive way. Uh, but from kind of reading articles about it in, in Sweden, it's mainly very skeptical. But then again, that kind of goes back to how soft power works. Because I would say in Sweden, well, and actually I, I have data on this, if you go watch, if you look at Pew's uh, pretty recent poll, mm -hmm. Sweden is one of the most, so the general public has the most negative views of China. I think it's uh, around 70%, which is only, the only country higher is, is Japan, with like 80 something. Uh, so again, that ties into it. So when, when a country doesn't have as much soft power and you try to influence other countries, it might not work because you lack that soft power. And it's also a volatile power tool, if you will, because yeah. uh, it can also then backfire or exactly. it can be interpreted in, in other ways. Exactly. So, right. And again, if, you, if we use the China versus U.S. kind of, if U.S. sent aid to a country, I don't think anyone would really criticize them. It would almost be expected. So then you can kind of see soft power in play here that even though it's the exact same act, depending on who 
does it, yeah. it will differ. Uh, so let's just take Sweden and, and China. I think it's a, it's a very, it's a pretty easy case actually. So Swedish media has, has uh, paid more attention to China in recent years. And it's in large part due to uh, both the case of Guimin Hai and also Ambassador Gui. Mm. No relations there. And so the case with Guimin Hai, if people don't know, it's uh, he was a, uh, a Swedish national. Uh, <coughs> well, he was previously Chinese, but he became a Swedish national. He had a bookstore in Hong Kong, and he was kidnapped by uh, China's uh, government in 2015 late 2015, and then he appeared on Chinese state television in 2016 and kind of confessed to these different crimes. Uh, I won't go too, too much into detail, but that has kind of erupted this whole negative view of China in Sweden. Along with this, uh, Sweden got a new ambassador in 2018 who has been very outspoken. And the ambassador, I guess, could kind of, you know, be described as a form of soft power if they're friendly and they're you know very pro the country they're in then that's going to paint a very positive association with the country they represent i don't think that's the case with the chinese ambassador at, at all he has been very critical of swedish media individuals uh, i won't name them but <laughs> so that kind of goes into the negative association with China and Sweden. But then that also brings up the question of, is that still soft power when he is almost directly criticizing and trying to not even coerce him, but he's, he's basically trying, well, that is coercion. He's trying to force the media to, to write China in a more positive light, basically. And, and this debate uh, has kind of sparked this new idea that specifically to China, actually, and the Chinese soft power is maybe no longer as soft as, as it was or how, how Joseph and I kind of thought of it as. And instead of actually calling it soft power, they've called it sharp power. What is that? Sharp power, it's a pretty new idea actually, mm -hmm. uh, maybe like two, three years old. But, but basically, it's when people look at China and you can kind of see that they're almost trying to apply censorship to foreign nations. So just in the recent uh, pandemic, I think Denmark published a, uh, of course it was pretty bad taste, but they had a picture of the Chinese flag instead of the stars, they had the, the virus. And basically the, the Chinese government demanded an apology from the Danish government. But this newspaper, I mean, it's not associated with the government. Yeah. In any way, it's a privately owned, privately run everything. So you can kind of see that in, in, in by doing so, it's no longer trying to gain favor. It, it's rather you're very direct. Yeah. And and you're not threatening. You're mostly just saying, this is unacceptable. We want something more specific, concrete. Yeah. And it differs a lot from the previous examples of Japan and Korea, where it's more you know, look at our country, we have this vibrant culture, don't you want to be friends? And it comes to China, it's more, and, and I think it has a lot to do with China's growing influence and their economic dominance.
yeah. that they go from trying to befriend to almost being a bully. So soft power is sort of like the framework, and then depending on what country it is, you have to use like different tools to get your way. Yeah. Um, because uh, one country cannot do, you cannot like take a strategy from another country and apply it yourself. Yeah, yeah, of course it will differ. Be, you know, culture is different and, and the form of governance will differ. Yeah. Um, so, and I think there are also, I mean, some countries have had kind of not involuntary soft power, but they're not actively pushing. And, and again, Sweden, I think, is a very good example. I don't, think, I don't think Sweden has a specific policy that says that we should push Swedish culture. It just kind of, you know, had a life of its own. Uh, Fika, I think, is a very good example. And then you have, you know, Ikea kind of, and, and all these brands actually all goes into your nation's brand. Yeah. So, so with China, it, it's kind of difficult, I think for them to do the same thing. I mean, yes, China has a very, very long history and of culture, uh, but they also have very negative associations. So it's very hard for them to let it kind of run its own course. So I think also that's kind of plays into why they are so actively trying to control the narrative. And if we go back to the, the Sweden and China relations uh, mm -hmm. again, could it be handled differently? Would, would like Sweden react? Yeah, definitely. Uh, from a Chinese perspective, it's actually very confusing why they are doing what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of theories. So one theory kind of says that it's the government experimenting. You know, the, the Chinese government wants to see how far they can push things before a country or, or, uh, or EU will retaliate. Mm -hmm. Uh, there's another theory that's saying basically the ambassador, he's, uh, he's rogue. He's, go he's gone rogue basically. He's doing this on his own accord. He just wants to, he, he just wants to kind of push the Chinese perspective harder. And then there's also kind of the mixed uh, interpretation that in the beginning it was probably the ambassador himself who did this. And then the Chinese government sees this and then they're just kind of letting him do his thing and mm -hmm. see kind of where this leads. But that's from the Chinese perspective. Yeah. But if you take it from the Swedish perspective, it's very hard, I think, for for Swedes to accept other nations coming in and telling them what to do. Because in Sweden, we're so used to having freedom of speech, freedom of press, all these different freedoms. So so when an ambassador who who's from a uh, well, <laughs> communist country, <laughs> tries to dictate how the media should portray the country, I think it's a very counterintuitive. Because of all these uh, norms in Sweden, and I think uh, it's a very typical culture clash as well there. The, the, the ambassador might not really understand how it works in Sweden, and so that has led to all these confrontations. So, yeah, it, it doesn't really make sense for the ambassador, but of course, that's from a more Swedish perspective to yeah. do it. If, if you actually want to influence the media, he's doing the opposite. And but from a wider perspective, you could argue, you, you, like you just said, that it's a, like a, an example or a test yeah. balloon or... Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah. So, so if it is some kind of grander plan that China has, okay, then, then there isn't much discussion there. But if they're actually trying to, to 
paint themselves in a, in a more positive light, it's a complete way to do it. It's a completely wrong way to do it. But are there any positive examples of uh, how when soft power from China to Sweden has, you know, been... I think something that you can consider relatively positive is actually uh, the Confucius institutions. Mm -hmm. uh, so they've, of course, received a lot of criticism in recent years. But I think the idea behind it was basically you kind of try to show other countries your culture and, and learn Chinese. And I, I think the basic or the underlying there was definitely a good idea. But then, of course, you can kind of get into, okay, were they actually trying to you know, push Chinese propaganda and stuff? But, but at its core, I, I think that was something very positive. I, in recent years, of course, you know, the, the last one actually was shut down. The institution was shut down this year because of these criticisms and, and the declining view of China in Sweden. So in a way, it was almost forced shut down because people became suspicious and you know, they, they said that the institutions was basically <coughs> pushing for the Chinese agenda. But before that, if you look kind of beyond, okay, all that kind of stuff, I, I think it gave a lot of opportunities for Swedish uh, university students and, and high school students as well to at least kind of dip their toes into Chinese culture because then they kind of realize, okay, it's not just what we see in the media. And I know that a lot of these institutions and something called uh, Confucius classrooms, they actually organize these trips for students to China. And from the kind of interviews I've read, after the, the trip, a lot of these students very enjoy very much. And you know, learning a lot of languages is always something I think very positive. I mean, it doesn't hurt to know another language. So I would say that in a way I think it has brought more positive things to China than, than negatives, mm -hmm. at least uh, prior to 2018, I'd say. Taking all these examples, uh that you, that you explained to us. Uh, mm -hmm. When is soft power the most efficient? Well, we kind of dipped our toes into it, but it, very de it depends on the country. Mm. But I think if we take the, the country with, who, who's had, I think, the, the, the largest amount of soft power, it is probably the United States. And if we look kind of when their soft power was the most influential, I would say it is you know, right after the Cold War. And, and then you kind of get into the discussion of, okay, but does soft power rely on hard power in some way? Because soft power in, in some ways, you know, it comes with an understanding of, of a country as well. Like it's, it's kind of the underlying understanding of a country. So with the US, for example, people realize that they are the, the leaders of the world, not just culturally, but you know, they, they have the hard power to back it up. Not just military, but also, you know, the, the economy. You know, Wall Street and was basically the economic center of the world. So I guess it kind of all ties together in a way. And it's very hard to kind of get away from hard power when you, when you talk about power. You know, pow power is, is, is a widely discussed topic, but in the end, it's basically how A makes B do something. And that's also the aim of the soft power. Right, exactly. Like soft power, in the end, it is still somehow you want another actor to do what you want to do, or at least agree with you. Mm. Um, 
but I think what, what has come from Safar, positive at, at least, is the, these, these smaller countries who might not have as much hard power, uh, again, Sweden being one, still has a chance to play a vital role. So, so the United Nations might not be a very good example uh, because there it's very obvious who has real power. It's the Security Council. There, there's, there's very hard debating that. But if you look outside of that, kind of how the media portrays uh, and how other countries view you, if you have soft power, even when you don't have the hard power to back it up, you can still be influential. So, you know, I, I think Sweden has become almost a leader in the climate movement. So, so that kind of shows that it's not all about hard power, and, and soft power still plays a role. But I think to be very, to be super effective, and you know, kind of have have the trust of every other nation, you still need some form of hard power to be very effective. I don't see really Sweden becoming the the number one soft power in the world. Yeah. Uh, they'll probably still be top ten, but but probably never as influential as as the US was. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Oscar, for sharing these uh, interesting uh, uh, concepts and uh, examples with us. Thank you for having me. Find us on www.ui.sc. We are also on Facebook and on Twitter with UI Sweden. And we're also on YouTube, where you can watch our seminars and interviews. Catch you later. <laughs>